one thing that shocked Dave and I was how often women said, dudes, could you just listen? Could you just listen? Don't try and solve my problem. Could you really just offer generous listening? Find out about my experiences. Find out what I want for my career. Don't make assumptions. Just listen to me. So I think if we guys could do that well, we'll be on the right track to allyship. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your Daily Helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we have a pair of brilliant authors to share with you today. David Smith, PhD, is the co-author of the forthcoming book, Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace. He is an associate professor of sociology in the College of Leadership and Ethics at the U.S. Naval War College. A former Navy pilot, Dr. Smith led diverse organizations of women and men, culminating in command of a squadron in combat and flew more than 3,000 hours over 30 years, including combat missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. As a sociologist trained in military sociology and social psychology, he focuses on research in gender, work, and family issues, including gender bias and performance evaluations, dual career families, military families, women in the military, and retention of women. W. Brad Johnson, our second guest, is a professor of psychology in the Department of Leadership, Ethics, and Law at the United States Naval Academy and a faculty associate in the Graduate School of Education and Johns Hopkins University. A clinical psychologist and former lieutenant commander in the Navy's Medical Service Corps, Dr. Johnson served as psychologist at Bethesda Naval Hospital and in the medical clinic at Pearl Harbor, where he was the division head for psychology. He is the recipient of the Johns Hopkins University Teaching Excellence Award and received distinguished mentor awards from the National Institute of Health and the American Psychological Association. Dr. Johnson is the author of numerous publications, including 13 books. But again, we're here to talk about their latest collaboration, Good Guys, How Men Could Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace. Brad and David, welcome to The Daily Helping. It is great to have you on the show. Thanks, Dr. Richard. Great to be with you. Excellent. Great to be here. Absolutely. I I love when we have these dual guests because we get to have just double the fun. It's like the double mint commercials everybody remembers. (laughs) (laughs) So... This, what brought you guys together? Because I want to talk about how you guys came to collaborate, and then we're, I want to jump right into talking about this very important book. Yeah. Yeah. So, Dave, I'll jump in, but you need to finish our, our story here. So, yeah. so uh, I'm Brad, and I, I, was, I was 
you know, spending my entire career uh, at the Naval Academy researching mentorship, right? So what do great mentorships look like? And, you know, especially from the perspective of mentees. And one of the things I noticed over the years was that the research shows that women get less mentoring. They get uh, mentoring that doesn't have the same quality oftentimes, and they often are missing the sponsorship piece. So that was always an interest to me, why men were reluctant to mentor women. And then along came my my colleague Dave here, brand new sociologist who is all about uh, women in the workplace and work family dynamics. And we began collaborating on this question of, you know, how do we get men to come to the table as better mentors for women and what do men need to know and what what would women like them to know uh, about mentoring women so so that was our first book athena rising and and then we started getting pulled into all these conversations more broadly around allyship right and and how men are often not part of the equation and uh, resolving gender inequities in the workplace. And so that set us on a new research project around better allyship. And I'll, I'll hand it off to you, Dave, to wrap it up. Yeah, as, as Brad mentioned, after Athena Rising had come out, uh, it was about a year later that Me Too went widespread around the world. And, and we did. We got pulled into this broader idea of not just how can we be better mentors and sponsors and just advocates for, for women in the workplace, but how can we just show up as allies? What does that look like? And what does it look like at every level? So if you're a brand new employee all the way, if you're the CEO of the company, what does that look like in terms of allyship and partnering with women uh, to to really eliminate and, and look for that bias and those inequities in the workplace? And how do we begin to start to shift the, the status quo there? And so Brad and I set out to do the research uh, for this this new book, Good Guys, and much like the first book, we, again, pulling together very evidence-based as, as social scientists, uh, we, we really privilege the, the evidence out there and, and bring that together, but also important to have women's voices centered. And it was, was really, I, I think, one of the telling uh, stories we had when we first started working on Athena Rising was we would tell some of our female colleagues about the book that we were writing about, oh, we're going to write about this book about, you know, cross-gender mentoring and relationships in the workplace. And, and they looked at us and they were like, you know, you realize you're two dudes writing about women and relationships. And we're like, yeah, okay, we get it. But it was really important though. It was, it was important to recognize that women's voices needed to be front and center in all the work that we were doing in this way. And so we had the great fortune to interview senior women across every industry and profession out there. And these are most of them really high flyers. Um, and, and talk to them first about mentoring and mentoring relationships for the first book, but now for the new book about male allies. And what, what do these allies do specifically? What were the micro behaviors, the skills, the specific actions, the things that they would like other men to know about, uh, about how these allies came across in the workplace and how they really showed up every day? And, and, and then we also got a chance to interview these men that they, they considered to be allies. So the only men that we interviewed were those that were nominated by these women. So men didn't get to uh, self-label or self-promote their way into the book. But it was, really, it, was, it was really interesting to interview these men because very humble. Many of them didn't really kind of even understand in some ways how they were considered allies because they felt like this is just part of who they were, who they were as leaders, who they were as people very humble, uh, and all about doing the right thing and what that looked like in particular. So it was a lot of fun to, uh, to pull that together. And I think as we get into the conversation about allyship, 
what was very clear was there are two parts to allyship as we talk about it in the book and, and really how the men that we talked to and the women that we interviewed, how they described it. And first was just the interpersonal part about how we show up every day and in terms of our relationships and that, that could be in the professional mentoring, uh, maybe formal relationships, but it's also as friends and as colleagues, as peers and how we collaborate and support each other in, in doing the work and making sure that we're, we're rooting out any bias or inequities. And that's really kind of around the personal accountability piece, holding yourself accountable for those relationships. And then the second part, which is really the harder part, is the the public or systemic aspect of allyship and how we, um, again, hold others accountable and hold our organization and our leadership accountable for doing the work. And so if we see bias in in the system and in everyday practice, then that's where we have to call it out. Uh, begin to disrupt it, and then find solutions for it. How do, how do we make this more equitable for everyone so that it's better for us, better for the women that we work with, and, and certainly better for our organizations and our society? I'm curious, the, the men that you interviewed, they were nominated, you said. So nobody got to just say, hey, I'm an ally and get themselves in the book that didn't deserve to be in it. As you were interviewing the these men, I, I imagine a lot of them did very well uh, on part one. Right, like it's a part of who they are. They're just naturally accepting and supportive. Were any of them, or you, for that matter, in doing that research, surprised that some of these biases were were heavily present, and they were unaware that that was the case? Yes, it's such a good question, and and I'm glad, Doctor Richard, that you have normalized this because I think one of the really important takeaways here is that all of us and I'm talking about men, are on this ally journey, you know, we're somewhere, you know, on the continuum. And it would be it would be unfair and unrealistic to think that at some point we're bias free, right? And and that goes for David and I, you know, our, our own biases can can crop up anytime and, and we have to hold ourselves accountable uh, when that happens. But yeah, you're you're right. I, I think even the best of us. Uh, male allies still fall prey to some of these, and some of them are really subtle, right? You know, so in social psychology, there's this phenomenon called the women are wonderful effect. And so you ask men, what do you think of women? And to a person, you know, most guys will say, oh, women are great. They're wonderful. They're so kind. They're so caring. Women are terrific. What they're not saying is women are take charge leaders or women should be the next executives in my company. Or, or you know, I, I see women as uh, people that I want to follow. So sometimes the very subtle, implicit stuff about how we don't see women can still be a problem, even when we're consciously trying to do uh, some of the disruption. And and I will say, you're right also that the public allyship is the harder part, I think, for all of us. you know. And one example, uh, how do I call stuff out? How do I disrupt something when I'm at that meeting and a dude has just said something really egregiously sexist or maybe told a harassing joke? Um, you can just see this scenario play out, right? All the guys in the room look at each other. No one really wants to say anything. And then bystander paralysis sets in and and pretty soon no one says anything. So you know, messaging to guys is you have to be willing to disrupt. And that is hard. You're putting you're putting some skin in the game at that moment. And a lot of guys are reluctant, right? I'll 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 suffer the wimp penalty or I'll lose my man card if I confront other men. But that is the hallmark of public allyship. I, I have to be willing to be a disruptor. And I think that part of it is more challenging for for men 
you know, writ large. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. And there were there were countless stories of these, Dr. Richard. And I would say that, you know, a lot of it centered around and this is one of the things that we start with in the book is around this idea that as allies, all of us. Right. And this is for anyone. You have to start with developing an awareness of other people's experiences, so people that are different from you and how they might experience the workplace and really kind of understanding that and begin to challenge and find where you are making assumptions or it could be bias or stereotypes. Right that you just, you're just not aware of uh, without somebody calling it out and helping you to see these things. And this is one of the real challenges, I think, around allyship is that it's hard sometimes if you, if you don't have the opportunity to have it called out and to see it, you can't fix what, again, you can't see out there. And for so many men, as we were writing this book, we were really writing it to what we consider kind of the 80% of the middle. And this is the group of men that, again, they're all in they're all in allies, really, in terms of believing about believing in gender equity and gender equality uh, for the important uh, women that they work with and their family members. But a lot of them are like, I just I'm not really sure what to do or where to start. or Where do I begin? Or is it my place to insert myself into this? And, and without having an awareness of what what the issues are, what the problems are, it's really hard to fix it. We had a uh, I'll just give you one example. One. Um, one male, white male executive um, at a at an aerospace industry, he told us that he was working with this with a black woman who was getting ready. She was preparing for a pitch, uh, it was a software development pitch, and he was he was explaining to her, well, you know, for this audience that you're pitching this to, you really want to kind of come in and, and approach it with a little bit of a swagger and maybe a bit of an attitude to really show them that you know you're in charge of this project and you know what you're doing. And she just looked at him and she's, and she's like, you know, I can't do that. And he said, wow. Uh, he thought about it for a second. He goes, you're right. I can do that as a white man, but you can't. And it was just kind of this eye-opening, you know, again, assumption about his own assumptions about who he is and what, what he could do versus what she could do and what was appropriate. And really, without developing that awareness and understanding, again, through interactions and conversations that we have and disrupting a little bit of the status quo, it's really hard to do that. As I'm hearing this, this makes a lot of sense in that the example earlier given, hey, a guy makes a sexist remark in a boardroom, that's pretty obvious, right? Like it's red flag should be ding, 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 ding for everybody in that room. But for the subtle, the more subtle things, even those people that think they're allies, but they beneath the surface, there's something there and they don't even realize it. So how, how do you identify that bias, that degree of bias? How do you communicate with somebody who who's having those issues and, and help get through to that person? Because I imagine that's much less in your face. 
Yeah, yeah, you're right. Although I will say, even for the in the face stuff that you said should raise wet red flags, often men still suffer with, you know, not with sitting on the sidelines and not engaging, hoping somebody else will. Let me give you a, a couple other examples, Dr. Richard, though, that are a little more on the subtle side. And these are things, you know, that we men may miss. And, you know, one, one is, um, you know, are you showing up as a real ally at home? And often guys want to come to the workplace and throw on their ally cape and, and show how uh, much they're into uh, gender equity, supporting female colleagues, and they're doing nothing in terms of domestic partnership with their partner at home. They're not doing the childcare, they're not sharing, they're missing it there. It, it, really what we find in our research, if men are not willing uh, you know, to start there and support their partner at home, it's gonna really be quite impossible for us to get to gender equity in the workplace because women are always gonna be disadvantaged. So, so I have to be willing to receive feedback about that if I wanna be a male ally and hold myself accountable. And then how about implicit assumptions that may come out in all kinds of forms? So I'm in the meeting and I always, refer office housework to the women, the few women in the meeting, right? Hey, uh, Sally, will you take the notes? And, um, you know, Mary, would, would you be willing to um, run the social event we have coming up? I, I assign housework to men and I don't realize I'm, or to women, and I don't realize I'm doing it. I have to be willing to receive feedback. And, and once I get it, the light goes on, I need to hold myself accountable. Or whether about what about the motherhood penalty? It can be very implicit, right? Um, we have a woman, she's a, a, a high flyer. She's very talented. She really should be considered for the next promotion. But I, I find myself saying in a meeting, maybe trying to be thoughtful about gender, I think, I say something like, well, you know, she would be really good, but she just had a baby. And hopefully somebody in that room at that moment will call me out, right, and say, Brad, um, you know, if she's the right candidate for this job, why would you assume that because she's a mom, she can't do the job, wouldn't want the job, whatever your assumptions are? I, I need to hear that. And then I need to get better and realize, hey, I'm making decisions for women, not letting them decide about the right next step for them. So those are the kinds of things we hope men as allies in the workplace will start helping each other with. And we hope, you know, if you develop some trusting relationships with female colleagues, they're going to help you with that, too, by trusting you enough to confront you when you make some of those little errors. Standing. So well said. Thank you for that. I, I'm curious. I want to I want to circle back to the research. Was there anything that your research indicated that was completely surprising to you that you were, didn't expect to discover? Yes. Uh, so, <laughs> how, many, how, many, how much time do you have? Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I, I think one of the things that um, I think just a, a glimpse, a, a glimmer of hope out there on, on the horizon was. The vast numbers of, so when we talked, we did the interviews with women, the vast numbers of men that came to mind for them in many ways as allies. And, and so we had this, you know, a, it's just a wealth of, of people to interview for these men and, and to hear the work that was going on behind the scenes. And, and we haven't talked a lot about the, um, the public or systemic aspects, but we did get to talk to these very senior men who are often CEOs um, or certainly working in the C-suite there was a lot of accountability work going on. 
And, and these men, they talked about, so there were kind of three key pieces that they, how they talked about this. One was one, they were very comfortable talking about diversity and gender in particular. Um, whereas one of the challenges we find is that men just are not comfortable talking about gender or diversity period. And so they avoid it or they, or they say, well, you know, that's an HR issue or something, you know, and they, they hand it off to somebody else. So they just avoid that. And, and these men are very comfortable talking about it. And, and they're also very comfortable owning up to, again, their own accountability of mistakes, uh, very public about it, and, and then sharing that with others, which I think, again, around Brad and I talk a lot about a, kind of creating a community of allies out there that we need the feedback. And, and we as guys need to be doing this for each other too. Not We shouldn't be just counting on women to, to go, hey, you know, when you said that, um, we as guys can be sharing this information and we can share what we learn along the way. And so they were very good about sharing that. And, and you don't always see that kind of uh, risk-taking or vulnerability or authenticity, however you want to look at it with leaders at that level. Uh, but these guys were really, really good about that. Um, they also talked about being transparent about what they were doing and why they were doing it. And so they had very clearly thought out the personal why, and many of these men had a very personal connection to it, sometimes related to a family member, sometimes related to people that they had worked with. But they had a story always that really made it personal for them. And then they what they deliberately did was connected it to their business and why. So why this is not just important to me personally, and here's why it should be important to you. And this is so important is you're implementing change. Uh, these kinds of very small, subtle changes sometimes at with frontline managers and middle managers who are doing the work every day out there of doing this, of implementing change. They were able to communicate it in a way to them that they, they understood it and they believed it. And they say, Oh, okay, well, I need to be doing this too. And I have to hold myself accountable. And so creating this accountability was so important. And the other one, I was really surprised that there was so much external accountability going on already in our uh, a lot of companies today. Uh, we'd heard examples of this before we started the work, but certainly in our research, it came very clear that a lot of companies today are, are finding ways to think about how they hold others that they work with. So these are clients, customers, suppliers, vendors, contractors, you name it, um, accountable for, for doing this and representation. So if you don't have at least 30% women in the team that you're coming to see us with, or 50-50 in some cases, don't don't come. We're not going to do business with you. Wow, so you, okay. Under, right, really <clears throat> understanding that and saying, oh, you know, for us to sponsor uh, this particular conference or be involved in this conference, hey, there will be no mantles, you know, none of the all-male panels that are going on there. And we would actually like to see these kinds of levels of diversity within, uh, again, the panels and the way you set up your conference. And so really interesting to see how different teams and different industries are doing this. We heard it from law, from finance, from tech, and a variety of different ways. So yeah, I mean, to me, that was really, again, a lot of hope and, and more than just a glimmer of hope in that case, um, and a positive aspect of what, what's going on already out there. Really powerful. The one that struck me was customers, because it makes sense. We're talking from an internal organizational standpoint, but there's often that fear of losing revenue, losing that business opportunity. So share with us some tips for broaching that, because I imagine a lot of people listening to this like, whoa, or I just don't want to make my vendors upset or alienate my customers. So how do you deal with that? You know, it's an interesting one. It, it, it's kind of almost counterintuitive, uh, exactly as you said it, that 
what we find is, is that there are a lot of investors today also, right? So you, they're not really customers, but they are. They're investing in your organization. Um, investors are looking for that. They're looking to see how transparent or how much disclosure you're making about, oh, where, where are you when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion? What types of programs? What are you doing really to move the dial on inclusion in your organization? And then how are you doing at it? And are you, tell, are you talking about it? Can I find that information on your website? Are you reporting this out to your board? Um, and again, we find lots of ways that this is happening, sometimes legally. Uh, so from, from a state level, obviously, there's requirements in some states to do this. Um, France just had a requirement now with their, with their new uh, index out there, where again, American companies are having to deal with this for the first time. It's like, so if, on their gender equality index, if you're not high enough, there's actually punitive measures that will get put in place, hopefully to, to motivate you to do the work that make change. And a lot of that centers around just representation at the senior levels of, uh, of an organization, of a company. The other part of it is the pay equity gap. And then where are you with pay equity and, and reporting that and really being, um, being transparent in it? Because again, I think investors and customers and lots of people want to uh, engage with companies that are are forward leaning on these conversations because it is kind of the wave of the future out there. They don't want to be associated with. They, I think they see it as risk if you're not doing these things. Really, really salient. I I know that we haven't really spent a lot of time talking systemic, and that's that could probably be an episode onto itself. But I I do want to spend some time and talk about that. So what what did your research indicate? in terms of what's going on at a systemic level and then some some high-level points on things we need to start thinking about to, to remedy that. Yeah. So, Dave, here's my thought. Why don't I address a couple of things related to mentoring and sponsoring that we're seeing that are kind of systemic uh, innovations? And maybe you have some more workplace policy uh, ideas. But just a, a couple of examples um, in terms of how to get men engaged in your company and in your organization, Dr. Richard, because that, you know this is one of the big obstacles. After the Me Too movement, we saw research coming out of Lean In and Bloomberg showing that up to 60% of men in corporate America were less comfortable having coffee, having conversations, doing mentoring with women, right? It, it really cast a pall over cross-gender interpersonal relationships at work. So to combat that, some companies that were really struggling with elevating women into significant leadership positions, retaining talented women, uh, J.P. Morgan and Procter & Gamble did something really interesting in terms of policy. So J.P. Morgan instituted a 36-minute campaign where they're asking men to take what they call a 35-1 pledge. And in that, they're asking men to spend 30 minutes every week taking a talented junior woman to coffee and just having a conversation, a mentoring conversation about her career. So sort of not only giving men permission, but asking them to do this. It's an obligation uh, they're asking men to take on. Then spend five minutes a week telling uh, a woman uh, how great some win or achievement was that she has recently had, and then spend one minute telling everyone else, you know, especially in the, the chain of command about her win or her achievement. So kind of doing the sponsorship piece. We love this because it, it, it directly sort of empowers men to 
engage very directly with women. And then Procter & Gamble, same, same struggle, same difficulty retaining women. They started a reverse mentoring program where they had very junior uh, women coming in the door being assigned as mentors to very senior men at Procter & Gamble. And the beauty of that is, you know, she's supposed to be his mentor, teaching him about what it's like at her level in the company, new technology he may not be aware of. Very quickly, those relationships became very reciprocal and mutual. So pretty soon he's sponsoring her, mentoring her as well. And, the, and the, within just, I think, five years, they had radically increased the number of women they were promoting into significant leadership. So those are just two kind of policy examples on the, on the interpersonal side. But Dave, anything more broadly systemic? Yeah, I mean, there's so much going on right now, especially, I think, you know, as we're dealing with the pandemic and the work from home uh, in particular right now, I think one of the places everybody's looking at is obviously remote work and we're remote remote work arrangements in particular. And this is this is important because, you know, up until the pandemic, largely this these were often looked at as, you know, telework or flex work as things that are women's programs. These are women for women's issues, right? So that they can do the caregiving that they, that they have to do, right? <laughs> looked at it and I say that have to, because that's the way it tends to be viewed. But, um, but remote work now and work from home has kind of shifted that around. And before even, it's kind of interesting, women were more likely to use uh, remote work arrangements prior to the pandemic. Uh, but men had more access to it because of the type, the positions that they were in. Um, but now everybody's using it. And so I think people are beginning to understand the value added and, and where you know, the trust is and with, with employees and different things that we, you know, again, how much more effective or efficient we might be when it comes to remote work. Assuming someday we get all of our kids back into schools and childcare and all those things are sorted out, which is another which is another conversation. But um, but remote work, if we can begin to shift that and not make it and make it more accessible, or think about how we create more flexibility in the work arrangements, it allows now for for not just women right to participate in these things, but men also need to be doing these things and they need to be advocating for it and. And this is something, again, I think men have often kind of steered away from because it's like, well, that's, you know, that's something for women. Who am I to be advocating for those kinds of policies? Well, it's for your employees. And, it's, and as an ally, you do it for, for your peers, too, for your colleagues who, who might need these kinds of arrangements, even though it, it doesn't necessarily, it may not apply to you in particular. This goes with paid leave, too. And we're seeing that. That was important before the pandemic. It's even more important today around paid sick leave and paid parental leave and, the, and having access to that. And again, not just for women, but men, as men, we need to be advocating for the policy and we need to be taking that. So when we have our, when our children are born, we need to be taking our fair share of the parental leave and doing our duties. We need to, when the kids need to go to the doctor or the, somebody has to stay, a parent has to stay home with a sick kid, guess what? We need to be doing our fair share of that. And the other thing is, guys, we can't just, you know, often when we were in the physical workplace, but even today in remote work, we do this when it comes to email and, and Zoom meetings or, or however we're meeting today. Um, we can't just kind of slink out the back and slink out the side door and kind of try to hide the fact that we are doing these kinds of duties. We need to be, we need to be loud about it. Leave loudly when you're, when you're not there. Uh, how often are people putting that in there? Um, if you have an email 
auto reply on there because you're 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 taking the day off to go do something for the kids or family responsibilities obligations put it put it in your email reply normalize it so that everybody sees that hey this is something that we as men are doing too and and there are, again with the younger generation of men coming into the workplace there's an expectation that they should be doing and they want to be doing it and their partners expect them to be doing it. And so we need to be thinking about a lot of these different policies in particular, I think that are good for everyone, uh, not just women, they're good for men too. And it's good for our organization. Such great stuff. Gentlemen, tell us again, the title of the book and where they can get their hands on it. Good guys, how men can be better allies for women in the workplace and available at your favorite bookstore, Amazon or, or otherwise. And we hope everybody will get out there and order a copy today and read it and live it and, and hopefully share it with, uh, again, other allies in your life. Fantastic. And th this episode has flown by, but it's been such valuable information. And as you know, I wrap up every episode by asking my guests their biggest helping, that single one most important piece of information they'd like the audience to walk away with today after hearing our conversation. So I'll give you guys each a, a shot at, at answering this. So what would that be? Yeah. So this one's easy for me because uh, in both the interviews we did for Athena Rising and Good Guys, one thing that shocked Dave and I was how often women said, dudes, could you just listen? Could you just listen? Don't try and solve my problem. Could you really just offer generous listening? Find out about my experiences. Find out what I want for my career. Don't make assumptions. Just listen to me. So I think if we guys could do that well, we'll be on the right track to allyship. Yeah. And for me, I think really important is to remember that uh, allyship is a journey and we're all in different places on that journey. And we know different things. We're aware of different things. We're learning new things along the way and that we're going to make mistakes along the way. And that's and that's OK. Um, again, we do it with good intentions. And part of that is that we don't have all the answers. Right. And so we have to we have to learn along the way. And that's where some of the again, we have to give ourselves a little bit of of a, of a break once in a while that we'll make those mistakes. And and also, I think, especially for a lot of the white white men in particular, who we've lived to be in the majority for so long that Again, we're going to have to get uncomfortable, get comfortable being uncomfortable with some of these conversations and understanding our own privilege and how we can use that for good out there because we need to have the courage to go make the change and, and to disrupt the status quo to make, again, it better for us, for, for all the important women in our lives and at work and, and really for our organizations as well. Great stuff, guys. Uh, tell us your URL where people can find you online just as a parting shot. Yep. So for me, wbradjohnson.com. Yep. And davidgsmithphd.com. Outstanding. We'll have links to everything, including the book itself at Amazon and the show notes at thedailyhelping.com. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a very timely and important discussion. Thanks for having us, Dr. Richard. Fun. Thanks, Dr. Richard. Enjoyed it. Great. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it as well. And I also want to thank each and every one of you who chose to listen to this episode. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review because that's what, help, that's what helps other people find the show. But most importantly, go out there, there today, do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know who they are, and post in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. 